Hey, music lovers, the Cannamom Show podcast in collaboration with Lambkin Guitars is giving away a custom-built, one-of-a-kind electric guitar built by Josh Lampkin. The solid one-piece hemp wood body includes a built-in glass bowl piece. Yeah, you heard me right. You can take a hit and then play a lick. Now's your chance to help the Cannamom Show crush cannabis stigma with your entry. Register for the Hemp Guitar Giveaway online at lampkinguitars.com. That's L-A-M-K-I-N guitars.com. The drawing will be part of a 420 celebration at the Goods Dispensary in Somerville, Massachusetts, where the guitar is on display for the month of April. But don't worry, you don't have to live in Mass or be present to win. Visit LampkinGuitars.com to scope out the Hemp Guitar giveaway details and entry form. You'll even find a video of what could be your guitar in action. L-A-M-K-I-N-Guitars.com If you're a cannabis business owner looking to expand into new markets and need guidance and support you can trust, consider Collateral Base a group that has done it before in multiple merit-based and limited market states. Collateral Base was founded by an experienced cannabis attorney with highly educated consultants with master's degrees and years of experience in the cannabis industry. The Collateral Base team is confident they know cannabis licensing better than any of their peers. And I encourage you to see for yourself. It just takes one phone call. If you're ready to expand your cannabis business into new limited markets, contact Collateral Base today at 309-306-1095. That's 309-306-1095. Or visit collateralbase.com. Ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, welcome to another episode of Everything is Personal. Uh, I don't even know where to begin because I'm so honored to have this guest on my podcast. Uh, not only have I been a fan, uh, but also not only a fan of the show and, and the way uh, this person actually asks questions and does the research. And I uh, was honored to be on uh, his podcast, but also the activism that uh, he's uh, a part of. So uh, without further ado, I'm not going to go into a long uh, intro, but Mr. Montel Williams, thank you so much for being on. Really appreciate Thanks it. For me, sir. Thanks for having me. So uh, there is so much information uh, about you and uh, well documented, but I want to dig a little bit deeper and really understand. Uh, so f- a, a little more about you. And so let's start with uh, where did you actually grow up? I grew up uh, in a suburb of Baltimore, something called Anne Arundel County. And what was what was your childhood like? Uh, uh, you had uh, siblings. You like if you can describe. Uh, I'm, the of, I'm the youngest of four in a hardworking. I, I, I would think you would call us a um, lower upper class, lower 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 middle class family. You know, two hardworking parents working hard to earn a living and um, raise four kids. So, was your father a firefighter? He held multiple jobs. He ended up being a firefighter for the rest of his life. Ended up becoming the chief of the fire department in Baltimore City, and. Uh, Held multiple cabinet posts in Baltimore City. So, how did you join the military at age fifteen? I did not join the military at age fifteen. I joined the military. <laughs> I graduated from high school. I went in 
what's called the delayed enlistment program, but I was 17 when I saw papers. And so then I, I uh, delayed entered after I graduated from high school. Well, did you have to be 18 to get into the military or you could get well, in? Back then, back then, I think you, with your parents' permission, you could sign up at 17. Um, okay. And uh, so I signed, this was in 1974. So I signed up at 17, turned 18, my 18th birthday. Then I went into the service with the boot camp after that. At Navy, correct? No, I went to Marine Corps first. I was Marine, Marine Corps, Corps first. Listed, uh went to Paris Island um, and uh, graduated uh, out of boot camp. Then went on to transition over to the Navy through the United States Naval Academy, and I got commissioned. Got it. So what was – when you were growing up, was there – was our interest in the, in the military? Like what actually was no, the influence? We got to go back and remember this. I said 1974. Yeah. Just remember where there were riots around America for our participation in the Vietnam war. So military was not very popular. I'm the first person in my family lineage to actually go into the military. So um, I just, uh, I, I, I'm, I'm the youngest of four. My parents had spent a lot of money on college uh, for my siblings and you know, really didn't have the resources for me. And I looked at an opportunity to utilize the military as a transition through college. Got it. Um, I read somewhere that you speak Russian. Is that correct? Or I went to I graduated from the Naval Academy. I got a degree in uh, general engineering and um, a minor in international security affairs. I went on to the Defense Language Institute to get a degree in Russian. Yes. Interesting. So uh, do, do you uh, like practice speaking? Is that something? I, well, I haven't used the language in, in really now mm, stopped using the language in 85, 86. And, you know, I, I, I stayed current with it until about 2000, but I've kind of let it wane. I, yeah, speak it, I know yeah, enough you, trouble. <laughs> yeah. I, I, so I was born in Lithuania and I grew up, my parents, my dad was from Belarus, and my mom's from uh, Vilnius, from Lithuania. And our common language was Russian. So I spoke Russian in the house, and then my daughter understands it, but she, she doesn't really speak it. Like, spent with an I accent. Spent Vilnius. I spent some time in Vilnius shooting the television show mm, 30 years ago. Oh, well, I'm sure, I'm sure it's not the same. I was there about 18, 19 years ago, but um, yeah, it was an interesting European city. Uh, but when you were there, it was still was it still under Soviet uh, rule. I think it had just it just broken away. Um, I was there. Let me think what year that was. It would have been nineteen. Um, around ninety seven, ninety eight. Oh yeah, so it's already independent. Got it. Um, so I have a. I read this uh, when you were nineteen. You were diagnosed with uh, with cancer and uh, breast cancer, right? And then, like, I, I want to understand a couple of things because there's there's history and there's uh, written history about, you know, what happened. And maybe you can, uh, you know, describe that to our audience. But the question I had for you, being young and 19 years old, when somebody tells you this, this diagnosis, sort of what goes through your head? How do you, how do you I thought, take it? You know, at that point, I, I was a young Marine. I just graduated from the boot camp. I was literally uh, transferred out to 29 Palms, California. And honestly, it was a misdiagnosis. It wasn't a correct diagnosis. And, you know, I had some doctors that were overzealous and crazy who uh, uh, literally saw a weird case of gynecomastia and thought it was uh, uh, breast cancer and went ahead and performed a double mastectomy on me. Um, 
before even seeing the biopsy and the biopsy came back, of course, negative. Um, but I mean, it was about a mm, six week period of time when I literally thought I'm about ready, getting ready to die. Um, yeah. I underwent, you know, uh, 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 radical in the sense that they removed all the glands from the, each one of my nipples and a couple of lymph nodes under each arm. And, you know, I had drains in my chest and, um, uh, as I recovered, and then I went back to the to the hospital, uh, and this was done at 29 Palms. Um, you know, the doctor said, "Oh, look, we we got it wrong, but I'm glad we we took care of it." I said, "Took care of what? You know, you mutilated me for no reason." And um, you know, I, I was fortunate that at least I got the word back quick enough that I didn't have to really contemplate my mortality. Yeah, and plus you didn't have to go through you know radiation, chemo, and any of that stuff uh, yeah, after that. That was getting ready to be scheduled, and so I'm fortunate that the biopsy came back in time to stop that madness. So was it was it? I read somewhere too that it was a pectoral muscle tear or something of that nature originally. Yeah, what, it, what it what it was was I literally I, I'll tell you something very funny. I graduated high school. I probably was 145 pounds soaking wet. Um, I entered the Marine Corps. Went through boot camp, probably lost. Uh, yeah, I was about 142 pounds when I left uh, Marine Corps boot camp. So I was a pretty small guy, uh, six foot tall, skinny as a rail. Get out to 29 Palms. And um, as soon as I got there, because I had been married, so I was promoted out of boot camp, you know, I got put into a, a little bit of a, a leadership position. And, um, you know, I remember, you know, I was a big runner. And, um, the person I used to run with all the time said, dude, you, you know, you run, you lose too much weight. You got to get a bulk up a little bit, my friend, you know, you're a Marine now. Yeah. And so I, I recall going to the gym and I started working out. And on one day in particular, I kind of overdid uh, bench pressing and doing some, some chest exercises that caused the minor tear in my left pec. And um, I actually literally uh, didn't crack my sternum, but I really bruised my sternum really hard. And that bruise and minor tear is what caused the seepage into my nipple area, which meant one of them extend and, and get really kind of inflamed. And it would have passed if I had just, uh, they had done nothing to it, but instead they decided to jump in there like uh, they, they had discovered something that they thought they were going to win the Nobel Peace Prize for. And uh, uh, were wrong. And it, that almost uh, sidelined me from going to the Naval Academy because I had already been selected to go. And um, I'm walking around with braces like this, my chest, you know, on a brace. And um, uh, fortunately, one of the doctors went ahead and greenlit me to go ahead and go to the Naval Academy prep school, knowing that it would be a year before I would actually enter the Naval Academy. So they thought I'd recover by then. And so I got an opportunity to do that. So during this recovery process, mentally were were you feeling down or how how did i was about as pissed off as you could possibly be i mean i just i mean literally i had this doctor mutilate me um both sides of my chest um I, that's what really made me embark on a career of, of trying to take up as much space as i could probably take up so i, I got into being a real big avid weightlifter to see if i could reshape my chest mm. and I, I reshaped it in a way that it looked normal with a t-shirt on, you know, so you could see any scarring. And um, I got big enough that I, I started competing as a bodybuilder for a little while. Honestly, because I got, I jumped from about 145 pounds to uh, once I graduated from the academy, I, I, 
Canada Academy. I went to Guam, um, 1980. Um, and I blew up to about 220. Wow. So yeah, I was walking around. I, I used to, I, I was one of those guys that used to think that the more space you take up, the more a man you were, but the more the weights you picked up, the more a man you were. And, um, so I got into really, really, really heavy powerlifting and, uh, weightlifting. And, um, I walked around that way for mm, about 25 years. Did you actually have a stroke or something like that uh, while you were lifting? Five years ago. Was that during lifting? That was, I literally, you know, yeah, up until about five years ago, I was still, you know, pounding pretty hard. Um, I, I I work out now, but I don't do any of the heavy, heavy lifting. I used to, I mean, I mean, when I'm, I'm talking about heavy, like I used to squat, you know, in a rack, I could squat 640 pounds. Wow. Uh, I could free squat about 545, 550. Um, I was deadlifting out of a rack, 620 pounds and deadlifting off the floor about 520, 540. Um, I was bench pressing well into the high three hundreds. Uh, uh, and I did that until I hit about 30, 30. No, seriously. I did that until I was about 35. I started backing off the heavy weights, but I was still a 400 plus squatter. Um, even up until about five years ago. And I happened to be in a gym um in new york getting ready for an event and i you know what was i at that point in time i'm 60 i was 60 60 years old and i um was pushing a little bit harder than i should have you know you know none of us like to get older so you know um i uh i was still banging you know the way i have all the time i was i was literally doing things called giant sets where i was doing 30 reps in a row and lots of heavy weight lots of stuff i, was, I happened to be squatting uh dumbbell squats uh 85 pounds and um i heard a pop and i thought that's weird there's nobody else in the gym but me and i kind of looked around and i mean immediately the everything started kaleidoscoping and i i and i realized holy shit i said to myself i, I honestly said the words you know i think you had an effing stroke and i sat down for a second and i got a whoosh of like almost like um i was getting ready to pass out like tired pass out. Mm. And I went, no, you can't go to sleep because if I had gone to sleep, I probably would have died in that gym. Um, so I kind of got up. I had no balance. I had to wall walk myself. I was in a hotel. So the gym was on the third floor. I was staying on the 11th floor. I had to wall walk myself like holding onto the wall to get back to the elevator. Took the elevator up to my room, banged on the door, put a key in. My wife was in the shower and she came out of the shower. And I said, baby, call an emergency. I'm, I think I just had a stroke. She said, what? I said, I'm telling you, call the 911 and tell them your husband just had a stroke. And um, when the EMS guys got there, like I said, do you, you think you had, uh, the, they said the, in the report that you thought you had a stroke. I said, dude, I, I know I had a stroke and I think I'm having it right now. And they were like, really? And they, and so I just happened to be very fortunate and blessed that in the state of New York, they have three at the time, had three emergency vehicles, the only three of them in the country that are equipped for stroke. They are stationed in different areas of New York City. Why? Because a, a, a man who uh, was a philanthropist a year or two before had had a stroke mm. and his was pretty severe and realized that if he had had something that would have arrived at emergency time for him, his stroke would have probably turned out a little bit better. Um, he went ahead and donated those three stroke EMS vehicles to the city of new york one just happened to be parked a block and a half away from my hotel and 
they got me down into that uh, emergency vehicle. I was literally getting a CT scan in the street right in front of my hotel. And there's a doctor on the television screen right up here in the corner and said, Mr. Williams, I think you're right. You, you not only had a stroke, but you're still having one right now. And they rushed me to the hospital and they did everything that they needed to do to kind of slow it down. I had a, a fairly severe uh, hemorrhagic, cerebellum hemorrhagic stroke, type of stroke that I have normally kills 50% of people have it. Yeah. So I was very, very blessed and very lucky and very fortunate that the blood did not hit my spinal cord and did not hit my brainstem, which was was just miraculous. And um, But um, I ended up spending almost 30 days in the hospital, uh, initially and then another 60 days of rehab. And mm. uh, bounce back. I was able to come back. There's lots of reasons for that, but I think, you know, some of it a lot having to do with uh I I even in the hospital I went back on a CBD regimen almost immediately. Yeah. As soon as I was able to be lucid enough to do so. And um I started CBD and heavy dosing CBD and um I also work with a neuromodulation device. So I, I was using that and I think that's what helps speed up my cover my recovery. Yeah, uh, I completely agree with you. So uh my grandfather uh he had seven strokes and I was watching, you know, I was, I was younger. I was watching him and, you know, he lost his speech and he lost his, uh, couldn't walk and lost the use of his right hand. And, and the biggest thing that I remember that we were struggling with, and I think that's maybe one of the reasons why he had progressively continued to have strokes is this medication management. My grandmother had two bags of, uh, pills and she would call a doctor like every week, this is interacting with this one, and this is causing this one, and this is hurting his kidneys, and it was an ongoing thing. So I think if he would have had, you know, phytocannabinoids available, if we knew back then about the endocannabinoid system, all the different things that we know now, uh, maybe you know the outcome would have been different. So but that, that makes sense. Yes, yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm, I'm pretty positive. You know, like I, I I went on the doctors tried to put me on a on a really extensive regimen of medication. I'm on a little bit of medication, but um, I think that uh, really it was the use of cannabinoids that really helped to bring me back as quickly as it did. So you you were originally, when, when you got out of the military, you were doing motivational speaking or was that was that a career? Yeah, I, was, I transitioned out of the military. I started uh, uh, motivational speaking in uh, 88. And for three years, I ran a nonprofit organization while I was you know, still on active duty still doing my job, but I was doing this on the side and I was speaking around the country. I spoke to mm, right around a million and a half young people in schools, from high schools to colleges to civic arenas um, all over the country. I've spoken about 1,500 high schools across the country. Um, in some ways, that was kind of like the genesis of my show in a way, because you know a lot of the cities that I would go to, they turned it into a media event. So the media would come out, write some presentation and present it on the five o'clock news and things like that. So I had quite a following around the country. Uh, so, I, you know, when I went on the air, I think in, in uh, 91, it was a shocker to a lot of people that how successful the show jumped out the gate as, but they didn't recognize that their kids were coming home and going, well, that's the guy we saw in our school. Did you have, like, when you were in the military, did you have this calling uh, to be able to communicate to young people? Or was it like, um, because you were a decorated officer and you were finishing your uh, you know, your military career, you said, I'm going to take whatever I learned and see if I can pass on to the kids as far as uh, like leadership training. Was that- well, you got to remember, like, let's look at the time. You know, it's a, it's a, just like I said, look at the time, 1974 military. You know, there were people still walking up to people in, in uniform, not saying thank you for your service, but spitting on the ground. Yeah. 
um, you know, 1988. Um, we at Nancy Reagan had just said, just say no. There was a whole movement to vilify people who lived in inner cities and think that they were the cause of the problems in America. Now we realize that you know, our own government actually was uh, funding and seeding the, the, the drug abuse in the country. Um, and doing so, trying to ensure that, you know, people who live in the minority communities and in inner cities were the ones who were most abused by drugs. So, you know, I, I um, recognized at that time that, you know, the only thing that separated me from some of these people that they were talking about on the news was the fact that I got a good education. Yeah. Stayed in school, studied, I learned, I worked and, and tried to be positive about life. And so I wanted to share that with those who seemed to have a hard time understanding that, you know, education is a great equalizer. How did the actual show come about? Uh, your approach to it? I, no, I, well, it's, it's a, it's a, it's a hard, it's kind of interesting in, in itself. I literally, I'm speaking around the country five days a week in schools all over America. And every single day I was on the news, whether it be the 12 o'clock news, the five o'clock news, the 11 o'clock news, somebody covered it. Um, cause most of the time I would do a presentation in a city and then I would require, require by the end of the week, I had at least one forum with the students and their parents in the gymnasium at night. Mm-hmm. Um, I had done this so much that uh, in 1988, I was nominated as Esquire's man of the year, fortune magazine's man of the year. I did, uh, multiple shows for Gannett and for NBC and some in Washington, DC, um, I got nominated for an Emmy. I wasn't even a member of Natus for a show that I did out of Denver called The Fourth Art Case Rap by Racism. And I won the Emmy as best talk show host. And I wasn't even a talk show host. Um, so uh, it was 89, no, nine, 89, end of 89, early 90. Um, if you remember the motion picture Glory. Yeah. Uh, if you Googled Glory uh, or you Google Montel Williams doesn't open for Glory. Um, back then, Pepsi teamed up with Columbia TriStar and agreed to distribute the motion picture glory to every high school across America for Black History Month. Pepsi was one of my sponsors speaking around the country, all over the country. And they approached me and asked me what I want to do and open for this high school version of glory. And I said, yes, I did so not knowing who the producers were of the movie, the executive producer of the movie, the producer of the movie, his name was Freddie Fields, uh, an icon in Hollywood. Freddie saw me, as a matter of fact, after I produced this video, and um, it, it's a leader to the movie, it's, it's the thing that talks about Black contribution to Civil War and that kind of thing, and the fact that Pepsi takes pleasure in presenting glory. They sent him a copy of it. I'm on the front of his movie. He didn't know anything about it. So Freddie Fields literally called me. Um, I'll never forget it. it was uh, December 22nd, 1990. He called me in my office in Denver and said, hey, pal, who are you? What are you doing on my movie? That's explained the whole thing. He said, well, you know, um, I want to talk to you. If you uh, come out here. And so I flew out to L.A. and uh, went to his, his office. And I got there on the 20. 20- Third afternoon, had a meeting with him on the 24th, his day before Christmas. And I was going to fly. No, I'm sorry. I flew out there on the 22nd. I met him on the 23rd. I was supposed to fly back on the 24th, so I could be home for Christmas. However, it was a big storm, and so I ended up being delayed and, and being waylaid. But anyway, 
had this big meeting with him on the 23rd. And he said, you know, you ever thought about, and I had, at this point in time, I had already been doing special programming. If I went to a city, whether it be Jacksonville, Florida, Detroit, Boston, Chicago, D.C., they would ask me to host something with kids. Because at that point in time, again, let's go back in time. 1989, 1990, nobody was talking to kids. There was only one person in the school that was allowed to be in a school. It was a guy by the name of um, Oma, who did a scared straight thing in New York. Right. The only yep. person in school. I was in 15 high schools by this point in time. So I had a lot of footage. And I said, well, you know, I take a look at this footage, right, Mr. Fields, because I think, you know, I got something that uh, you've not seen before. And he took a look at it and said, you know, you ever think about wanting to do a talk show? And I said, yeah. So he said, okay. So that was the 23rd of December, 1990. I flew back out to L.A. mid-January 91. By mid-February 91, we were in conversation with every syndicator that there was. By April of 91, I signed my contract for a show. Flew to L.A. May 6th, did two test shows May 8th, went on the air May 11th, and never looked back. It's amazing. Was Arsenio already on the air by that time? Arsenio Hall's show was on right then, as a matter of fact. Uh, yeah. So- so I'm curious, uh, you know, w- having the landscape that we did, there were no black hosts of anything. Arsenia, I think, was yeah, he was the first one. So, w- was there pushback? Was there acceptance? Or was there it was like pushback? Are you kidding me? All over America, <laughs> uh, my show literally created a, a, a term in Hollywood that's now used as if it's been around for a long time. It's a thing called a slow rollout. Um, I, when I started my show, uh, literally, I, I went on 20-something stations and 30-something stations and 40-something stations. My show started in May of 1991, which is really four months before they normally launch new shows, which were all launched in September. Right. So I was on the air before the entire plethora of new talk shows began. Um, you know, when I was on the air, there was only Oprah, Sally, Geraldo, and Donahue. Right. And then so Regis and Kathy, Kathy Lee were considered a morning show. They weren't considered a talk show. Uh, I went on the air in May. Then in September, Ronald Reagan Jr. had a show. That's John Tesh and Lisa Gibbons had a show together. Chuck Woolery had a show. Jane Pratt, the editor of Seventeen Magazine or something, she had a show. So all of the shows got canceled. It wasn't until the next year that Maury Povich got a show. But what happened was because I went on in May, all of the new talk shows were compared against the ones that were already on the air. I was mixed in with the old guard. So my show got a pass from all the, the heavy bullying, and I grew very quickly. show grew in, in the first year. At that September, we were on 60-some stations. By Christmas, we were on 90-something. By January, we were on 100-something. I moved the show to New York, got a national pickup, and the rest is history. That's amazing. Hey, do you still have your Emmy? Oh, absolutely. Do absolutely. you keep, where do you keep it? Oh, right this minute, it happens to be in a closet. That's uh, <laughs> most people I talk to. It's in the closet somewhere. There are a couple. I put them there in a closet. That's great, Dad. Well, you know, um, that's a very funny story about that is that I had it out. I had it out. I used to keep it out all the time. And literally one time, um, uh, accidentally somebody bumped into it and knocked it on the ground, busted it. <laughs> So I had to go back to Natus and get a brand new one. And I, and I was so afraid I'd break that one. I've kept it in this, this really nice form-fitted box. So I'll break. That's, that's funny. Um, so I have a, it's well-documented your uh, 
diagnosis of multiple sclerosis, but I wanted to kind of get into the mindset of, um, did you have a feeling prior to the diagnosis? Like what were, what were the symptoms? What were you experiencing? Well, I, I, I definitely knew there was something wrong with me. I, I knew there was something wrong with me for 20 years before I got officially diagnosed. Uh, the, my journey with MS really truly started while I was at the Naval Academy um, and, and unusual for back that time, though it's not as unusual now because we do see diagnosis coming way earlier than they had in the past. But I probably saw my first symptoms when I was 21, 22 years old and never knew what they were. Could go back and forth. And, you know, I would go to a doctor. You got to kind of put this in, in perspective. I was I graduated from the academy. I weighed 190, had a 28-inch waist, was bench pressing 360, squatting 450, 500 pounds. Um, so I go to a doctor and say, you know, I got this really weird thing that's happening, you know, and I don't know how to explain it. And the guy would say, well, stop putting all that damn weight on your back and you wouldn't feel that way. That's what the problem is. Oh, you know, stop lifting all these weights. And I was like, uh, come on, you're crazy. So now for the next 20 years, I go about my life lifting weights, but every three or four months having some anomalous weird thing happening. When I mean anomalous, I'm talking a neurological weirdness. Like, you know, I lose vision in my left eye. Matter of fact, right before I graduated from the academy, I went blind in my left eye, which stopped me from going into Marine Corps air. Um, uh, my vision came back and then it would go away again. It would come back. And I get this really weird tingling in one hand and really weird tingling in my hip and really weird tingling in my side and in my face. And, you know, every time I go see a doctor, they look at me and go, come on, man. I mean, you, you wonder why you got problems. I mean, stop lifting all those heavy weights. And, um, it wasn't until really the year 2000 that I, Finally, had an episode that uh, almost shut me down. I, I I woke up one morning with just like severe neuropathic pain in my lower extremities, my side, my face, and um, went to a doctor, and then almost immediately was diagnosed. How come they didn't diagnose you for all that time before? Like, if you can go back and look at the history of of MS, it's been that way for not just me, but for everybody. It was that way for women, but you know, back then doctors really were throwing darts at a board trying to figure out what it really was. And it wasn't until recently that we started seeing the biomarkers and other things that actually determine what is MS and what is not. Um, but, uh, you know, and in a sense that, you know, in the year 2000, diagnoses have become more prevalent and easier to understand. But back then, doctors didn't have the tools, and especially in the military. And had I been diagnosed in the military, I would have been put out. Yeah. Yeah, we, we definitely need to work with the VA to get, you know, our veterans better healthcare. I know you're an activist about that. And actually, that's that's a, a question I wanted to uh, kind of ask you. As you got diagnosed, you started going through your own journey. Uh, what inspired you to say, I, I'm going to be you know, a spokesperson, I'm going to be an activist, I'm going to actually go public with everything? I, I figured that out. I'm telling you, the day I got diagnosed, I was so pissed off that I had been misdiagnosed for so long. Yeah. I really wanted to be able to help people not have the 20 years of, of question mark that I had. And, you know, also I'm a very big believer in, in, you know, we are not here on this planet alone. We are been placed here to participate in a grander scheme than yourself. You know, um, if we, if you believe that this is all about you, you're <laughs> skim my mouth effing crazy. Yeah. Um, you know, none of us get anywhere without the others. Um, and, so for me to learn things about how to deal with and cope 
with this kind of a chronic disease diagnosis, I felt it almost a criminal that I couldn't share this with other people. So my journey has been completely open so that anything I learned from me, I want to make sure I put out there so people who might be able to glom into just that one little thing might help change their life and change their position in life. Why not? Why should I not do that? And you know, unfortunately, we live in a time when, you know, narcissism seems to be the champion of the day. You know, I think narcissism is the death of us all. That's so well said. Um, why cannabis? Um, I think we have known uh, why cannabis. It's for the same reason why our federal government has done so much in cannabis that most people don't know about. Most people don't know that our federal government has researched cannabis at a fine. We, we were researching cannabis in the 80s, in the 90s. We funded research. We dist- Our federal government distributes cannabis. Why does the federal government distribute cannabis? They've been doing so for over 60 years. What are you talking about, Montel? Through a program at the University of Mississippi under the first George Bush, he okayed a proposal that would have expanded to thousands and thousands of people, except for they got caught their pants down and didn't know how to re- respond and react. And so they cut the program off. But our federal government has been dispensing cannabis from the University of Mississippi. And why? For the same reasons why our federal government gave itself its own patent. For your listeners who want to know, that patent is number 6630507. You can look it up today. Our federal government's had a patent on cannabis since they filed it in 1998, late 99, early, gave themselves a patent in 2001 for CBD, recognizing 100% the value of this medicinal plant that has been looked at as a medicinal plant for over 5,000 years. So we know for a fact, some of the best medications on this planet are plant-based medications. They've been around for since that's where man started learning about medicine. And um, this is one that has been used for myriads of reasons over the course of the last 3,500 years, especially, but there's research that claims that they found cannabis 5,000 years ago in in 5,000 year old mummies. And so- the truth of the matter is we've known about its medicinal effect, its efficaciousness, and the fact that we do believe that there are certain cannabinoids that are neuroprotectants, along with the terpenes and the flavonoids, that actually help to stimulate neurogenesis. MS is a neurological disease. When I first got diagnosed in um, 1999, I got a second opinion in 2000, early 2000. From a doctor who had been, you know, one of my lead doctors, who caught me opioid shopping, and you know, said, "I'm done with you. I ain't writing you. Know, I'm not writing you any more prescriptions. So you got to figure this thing out." But if I were you, I would look into some of this information that people have out there that I know that are similar to you, who utilize cannabis for some of their neuropathic pain. You got to try it out. And I started researching back in 2000, and uh, never looked back. Yeah, uh, neuroprotecting. You're absolutely right. I, I actually am uh, in the process of doing Irv Rosenfeld's uh, DNA test. Uh, he's one of the first people to get that uh, NIDA and AH uh, cannabis with a big USDA label in those tin jars. And uh, also, mm-hmm. Elvi Masika was the other one that I had on. We did it. I had Irv, I had Irv on my talk show. Yeah, yeah I just yeah. talked to him today. So, great. Almost enough. Yeah, well, great story. Um, so, uh, I'm interested about the, the process of writing a book. Uh, how do you decide 
to write a book or to get involved? And what is the process that you have to go through? Because I, I just wrote mine not that long ago, and it took me. I, I wrote, I've written eight books. Um, I fortunately, back my first book, almost all of them, uh, except for one, I, I wrote with, uh, I say, with a ghostwriter where I sit down. I have a process where I can sit down with a writer and literally we will speak a hundred thousand words, 200,000 words, 300,000 words, and then go back through those 300,000 words and put them together in a book. So a very similar process, same with me. Like I can't sit out. I have ADD and that's one of the reasons why I started consuming cannabis in the first place to get off prescription medications. But when I, I can speak, and I can record myself. So the process was, and I did mine like during COVID, I would record and then we would meet through Zoom. We would polish it up and it would be a chapter and we wrote the whole thing. And I was like, didn't capture my voice still. We have to redo it again. And it took me two years to do it because I, I, I still not 100%, 100% happy with it, but it was a great learning experience. But very similar how you did it. I, I, I've been pretty happy with mine. I, literally, I, I the words I spoke are the words that are on That's the page. Fantastic. Um, I, I have a personal question for you. I'm curious. How do you decide to get married again after being divorced? And what's the family integration like? Because I'm divorced uh, for 11 years already and uh, just want to get some advice. I've been divorced twice. Um, you know, I think everybody's individual and, you know, I, I'm a person who would prefer to be with someone and put my life in their hands and theirs and mine. Um, so I, I'm not, um, the institution doesn't scare me. Um, but I will tell you that there wasn't like a conscious decision, you know, first divorce happened and, um, and that was really, I think I was way too young when I got married to begin with and wasn't prepared for what marriage should have been. And then uh, my second divorce happened because um, we were not, definitely were not meant to be together. Though in each instance, I had two children, yeah. um, two from each marriage. And I literally did not think I would get married again, period. I ran around as a single person for... Uh, hard for about five years and then uh, about four and a half years. And then, then I just met someone who I just thought I would really love to spend the rest of my life with this person yeah. and knew it from day. Matter of fact, I knew it the day I met her. Um, I saw her and I took my bodyguard and I said, keep me away from that. <laughs> I mean, he, that's trouble. That's man. on you. <laughs> keep me away from that one right there. When I met her. What um, happened? He didn't do his job. You know, <laughs> yeah, he broke my leg and stopped me from going out there. But um, I, I started started going out, and this one has changed my life, changed my view of life, and changed my outlook on life, um, and made me a better person than who I was before. Man, you know, you can't change history, but you know, I wish I'd started there. I wish we'd started off together. We probably would still be together, you know, I mean, over 30 years. So it's been great. I've been married now for 15 years and um, I wouldn't trade this for a second. That's beautiful. Yeah. All right. Well, I got, I got hope. I still got hope. Well, you're, you know, don't see the thing about it though is, is I, I'm going to tell you, don't look for it. Yeah. Stop thinking that you have to look for it. Stop thinking that you have to be. All you have to do is understand that 
you have responsibility on this planet for your fellow man and work at it and work at you. You know what I mean? I, and that's another thing I think that helped me. It was the fact that I did put some time into working on me. You know, I, I started recognizing some of the, the selfishness that I was and some of the narcissism that I had and trying my best to figure out ways to, to battle that. And um, that made me more open to being receptive to somebody who could come in and not criticize, but just show me a different way. Yeah. And I was open to accepting it a different way. Yeah, I love that. I, I'm, I'm in a relationship now. I just, it's just that that piece of paper when it becomes a business contract that's where I get my trepidations. <laughs> well, but you know, I mean, whether it's a piece of paper or it's just a, a you know, I, I recently, um, very blessedly, had an opportunity to um, officiate a wedding for a friend of mine's daughter who I've known now for quite a long time. And she and her fiance asked me, you know, would I be the efficient of their wedding? And I was, I was so honored and so moved that they would even ask me to do that and i said yes because they didn't they also didn't want any kind of a denominational kind of wedding they wanted to have more, uh, an open earth wedding and um so then you know i i started doing a lot of thinking about things and you know when you're thinking about things like you know that contract that you're worried about you know that piece of paper is meaningless really you know because honestly if we go back in time, the way we view marriage now is entirely different than the way marriage has been viewed through history. We don't know that. We don't pay attention to that. We go back and look at what marriage was really all about. It really had less to do with love. It was a business arrangement. It was a family arrangement. It was a hierarchy arrangement. It really had nothing to do with love. Um, love didn't start entering the picture of romantic romanticizing marriage didn't start even entering the picture until mid 1800s. And then it really wasn't until, you know, honestly, about 1971, 72, when the courts finally recognized that there's something called marital rape, mm. where a man does not own a woman. It finally happened. Now all of a sudden marriage is really for real. Because marriage has now become a union between two people who have decided to spend their lives together and to possibly raise children together and to commit to being a society together. Mm. So when you really focus on the paper and eh, the papers are something that, you know, societies have needed to, to cop a buck from, you know, and that well, let's go all the way back to the church. You know, I mean, the only reason why the church has got involved was to cop a buck. You know, they, they sent ministers out around the country to, act like they were the ones who were responsible for marriage, they, just so they can get a dollar. Come on now. And uh, the, the, the roving rabbi got a free meal, a free place to stay for four or five days leading up to the wedding. Come on. You know, at a time when other people, you know, sleeping out under the, under the stars. So skip the paper. It's really more about what the two of you commit to here and commit to here. When you start to recognize that that's what it is it shouldn't be as fearful because especially if you're spending the time there now why not commit to ensuring that that person's future is taken care of if something were to happen that, that's a great point yeah absolutely do you have a passion for making movies 
Um, I've made, I've, I've actually directed, produced, made one, um, worked on a couple. Um, I would love to be in an opportunity to work on films uh, right now, but um, can't seem to, to knock on the right door. Yeah, I think my editorial opinion, based on your not only your life's journey, but the activism, there hasn't been really anything fantastic that was made about just the cannabis industry itself. There's all these different things that are out there. So uh, I think there's a, there's a big need to educate people in this way that you're talking about. Yeah, but I got to tell you something, my friend. I've been, I've been out here for the last five years pushing a paradigm for cannabis in the, the small screen. Uh, and, you know, Hollywood, as much as it talks trash, isn't ready. You know, take a look at everything that Hollywood's done in cannabis in the last four or five years. It's all Cheech and Chong, funny, yeah, yeah. bullshit. Excuse me. And this is a subject that's more serious than that. Um, we can't seem to get out of our own way. And as much as we act like, you know, I, I don't think I've been to a Hollywood party in 10 years where I know that somewhere in the house I can go meet up with 60% of people that are at the party and, and yeah. join. <laughs> so, and that's from the top down. I don't care if the police chief's there, local, right? Yeah. They're so afraid to do something right because they're afraid that the feds going to step on their head. So I, as much as there should be more serious programming done on cannabis, it won't be for a while. Mm. Well, I hope I hope that that's something that you're involved with in, in some way when they are ready, because I think you have a great way to tell the story and to make it. And it doesn't have to be a documentary. So there are documentaries that are pretty good. I meant like an actual movie that's not a comedy, like you said. It's not a Chin Chong type of thing. Let me ask you a question. Okay. Do you watch Netflix or any of the streaming yeah. services? Mm -hmm. Why is it that in every single streaming service, I don't give a shit what the show is? I, I don't care. I don't care if it's it's the new FBI, the old FBI, the new CIA, the old CIA, the military. Every hero or heroine comes home from work, goes right to the liquor cabinet, pours themselves four or five fingers, five, six fingers of some brown liquid and suck it down as if it doesn't bother them. And nobody even raises an eyebrow. Every show that's out there I look at the one that's the number one television show on air right now, which is uh, Yellowstone. Mm -hmm. I mean, in every episode, Costner and his daughter are belting back two, three, four, five, six. You know, the daughter's belting back at least two or three four-finger <laughs> gulps, and her behavior goes amok, but people laugh. Why isn't it what is really going on in this world where most of the people we know for a fact that right now there are more people consuming cannabis than there are cigarettes. So you know that everybody is coming home from work, going right into their bathroom, grabbing out that joint, taking two or three hits before they go and start cooking dinner. We don't see that. I, I do think it's changing. From personal experience, I remember like, uh, you know, and it's not about me, not my story, but when I got kicked out of my house and all that for, for cannabis, all these people who were my friends, they started pointing fingers. Oh, that's, that's the druggie. Right. But now, whatever many years later, a lot of them started coming back to me and talking about their, do you have anything for my pain? Do you have anything that you can recommend for this? So people are starting to change their opinion a little bit. It's, there's less stigma 
the, the public opinion, excuse me, my brother, listen to me. Think that polls are as high as 96% of the country believe that medical marijuana should be available. Mm. We finally broke the 68 percentile. 68 people percent to 70% of people in the country believe that cannabis should be made legal. You know, poll after poll after poll. People's opinions are different than what people will activate about or be active about. You still have people who are afraid to admit in a group of 10 peers that they smoke. What are you afraid of? Who gives a shit what that person down the hallway thinks about you? I could care less. And, you know, and, and right now we know for a fact, it is factual that cannabis is finally being used more than cigarettes are in America. Yeah. That's a fact. So... That means that, you know, you probably got somewhere and just screw this idea. Look, first off, 2021, $25 billion worth of legal cannabis was sold in the United States. We know for a fact that in the grand black market, it probably was double or triple that. So that's probably another $50 billion. That means it was $75 billion worth of cannabis sold in America, which makes it almost the amount of liquor sales sold in America. Cannabis sold more in a legal market in America in 2021 than milk. Oh, yeah. Milk is in every grocery store in the country. Good. Milk only sold $18 billion worth. Energy drinks sold $23 billion worth. Cannabis sold $25 billion worth. Yet we still have people who are afraid to admit it. Come on, man. We're, we're making a movie. I'm going to start raising funds. We're making a movie. Gotcha. <laughs> you know, Honestly, but the first thing we really need to do, you were saying that there's enough information out there. See, I, I got to tell you, I think that's the one thing that this industry has done a piss poor job of. Got so caught up in trying to get a billion dollars so we can go buy our own boat that we forgot to educate the consumer. We've been doing nothing but trying to educate the other business people. And as long as we do that, cannabis will stay where it is. The second we start telling the truth to the consumer, mm. Consumer will demand cannabis, but we don't tell the truth. Yeah, there are a lot of documentaries out there, but there are not a lot of documentaries out there that tell the truth. So how do we how do we you do know? that? What do we do? I think the first thing we got to do is we got to four-wall a documentary that tells the truth. Let's back up and show that America wasn't built on tobacco and cotton. America was built on hemp. America was built on cannabis. All of our forefathers grew cannabis. All of them. George Washington. Uh, all of them, and and majority of them smoked it. Yep. They did. Why? Why would they not, dude? This was 1690, 16, 1700. We're talking about you know lions, tigers, and bears. <laughs> all my, there was no toilet. You didn't go in a room and flush a toilet. Are you kidding me? You went out in the woods and grabbed a leaf and wiped your ass. And to, to make the pain of that white ass wiping go away, you smoked the joint. Yeah, it was hot. It was cold. It was too cold. You know, there were no heaters. There was no air conditioning. There was no bug spray. You know, uh, and we didn't eradicate mosquitoes. They were here. Life was rough. And, you know, most people don't even understand that here in the United States, especially in in America, North America, from mm, the 1690s, no, from the 1580s, all the way through till, you know, 1940. Most people, not 1940, 1920s. Most people in this country drank something that was called a near beer. You didn't drink water. You didn't walk down to the river, put your cup in and drink it up, drink water. Are you kidding me? 40 feet up the up the road, up the, the river from you, a bear just pissed in that. 
You know, um, Parkinson just, so, so, you know, there was all kinds of bacteria in water. So you had to boil your water and then add a little bit of alcohol to it to kill off all of the pathogens. So there were babies back in the, we, we fed babies 2.4 beer, 2.4 water. That's how you lived. You're walking around with a little buzz on all the time. I mean, so let's tell the truth. When we start talking about the truth, about the fact that, you know, the entire revolutionary army was clothed in hemp material. All of our early documents were made on hemp paper. George Washington sold hemp. The entire, the, 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 the Mason, you know, uh, uh, incense thing. Bullshit. That was pot. Let's talk the truth. Start telling people the truth. Once you start filling in the blanks about how much this has been an integral part of our society and mankind, mm. and we'll accept it. More. Do you think there's do you think there's an audience in the in the streaming service uh, that would you know because Fab Five Freddy did a, I think he did a pretty decent documentary about you know the 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 black experience in the cannabis space and gave some history about that. I thought it was a pretty decent one, but there hasn't been. A really, really good documentary, like you're saying. But that really wasn't, I don't think, as as far as it could have gone, because that experience, like, go back, didn't include the fact that, you know, slave owners made sure that they allowed slaves to use cannabis. Why not? Who the hell's going to go out and pick some goddamn cotton in a 900-degree weather without being <laughs> hot? Stop. So, you know, there were things that we did to, we thought, could help subdue people, control people. Mm. There needs to be a, and done in an entertaining way. I mean, and that's where, you know, I think I, I, I want to be able to be a part of that, wow. that story. Well, um, anything I can do to help, uh, you know, with that, let me know. I'd love to participate yeah. in telling the story as well. Um, you're a music guy, right? You played the bass and piano. Is that, is that correct? I used to play trumpet. I play little keyboards. Not much. Do you still play? Yeah. No, I haven't played. You know, MS took away my left hand. Um, you know, I don't, I don't, my don't. The speed of my left hand is gone. Uh, though I can wiggle my fingers like this, they don't go much faster than that. Mm-hmm. And so, um, you know, it it it's been, has been frustrating to me. Um, that's probably one of my my biggest life frustrations. However, you know, I enjoy music and still do, um, but I haven't been able to to perform in years. And I'll tell you a very very funny one. Um, I was singing up until my stroke, but my stroke literally did something to my inner ear mm. to the point that I it's off and it's hasn't I've, I've, since the day I have a stroke on the sun. Wow. Well, um, have you considered like music therapy? I know they do that for stroke victims. They actually start like playing different instruments and stuff and stuff like that. I, I had thought about it. I just, you know, didn't find a time because I'm running around doing all kinds of things and stuff. I'm involved in so many yeah. things. I'm not done. All right. So I'm going to try to wrap this up. I asked all my guests uh, um, the same questions. So I'm going I'm to ask you a couple of questions. Uh, let's see. Let's see how you do on this. Um, please describe your first experience with cannabis. My first experience with cannabis was um, when I, back in, I would think I, I think I was 14. Um, I could have been 13, uh, but I think it was 14 and I had been playing in a band and one of my bandmates had some and, um, and, but the band that I played in, these guys, literally everybody in the band was older than me. 
And so they would go out and get in the truck, drive away. I see smoke coming out. And then one night I remember, you know, they were going to go get, it was doing a uh, break and they were going to go get in the van. I was like, let me come. Said, no, you can't come. Let me come. No, you can't come. Yeah. So I ended up going. And um, I remember that was probably the, the da, 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 <laughs> cloud opened up, you know, um, I, I was, I was moved and realized this was going to be something like part of my life. Um, I'm a big music guy. You can see like records behind me and all that stuff, and yours as well. Do you remember what the very first uh, concert you ever attended was? Well, and I'll tell you something very interesting. Um, as a kid, my 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 father was a musician. My father played in a band, um, and you know, played gigs almost every week uh, since I was a child. He's a bass player and a singer, and. Um, Whenever anybody would come to town, whether it be the Temptations, the you know they would have the Chitlin Circuit uh, tours going on. We used to, my mother used to pile us in the back of the car. And we'd run up to go see some. So I remember seeing the Temptations oh, wow. at Hershey Park, uh, um, and then to go to a bona fide concert. Concert. Um, I'm trying. I can't remember the name of this group. I saw them. Uh, I went to a concert. When I was stationed at 29 Palms, I went to Palm Springs and saw, it wasn't Aerosmith, it was um, Air, Air, Air Supply Air Supply, or one of those kind of groups. I think it was Air Supply. But then the real, the best concert that I ever went to was when I was in Newport, Rhode Island. I went to see the Tower of Power and the Commodores oh, wow. opened up for them. And it's very funny, very funny because... I happen to know Lionel Richie um, and uh, went to his concert a couple of weeks ago. And Lionel and I were talking about the fact that at that concert that I went to um, in, uh, it was in Providence, Rhode Island, the the saxophone player for the Tower of Power, now the Tower of Power was the main act. The Commodores opened for the Tower of Power. And uh, they were opening for them on his tour all around the country. And um, it was so funny because the saxophone player, the guy who played the baritone sax, fell off the stage and broke his ankle. And that ended up stopping their tour uh, around the country. And I and Lionel, I'm, I'm looking at my phone right now, sorry, I'm looking down to find this picture because I and Lionel were backstage at his concert just about a month ago at the Wynn. And I said to him, do you remember back in 1974, 75, when you played at uh, in uh, Providence? And he said, yeah. And um, the guy who played the Barry Sax, I said, that's right, fell off the stage. Fell off the stage and broke his ankle. And look, dude, this dude walked back up on the stage. You remember the group Tyler Yeah, Power? of course. Yeah. The saxophone player, he climbed back up on the stage, finished the concert, finished the performance with a broken ankle. They put him in a car, and, and that was part of his problem because he was literally, it was almost, it wasn't a full compound, but it was a shard bone sticking out of the side of his leg. But he went ahead and played on for the rest of the concert, then well, went to the hospital. Back in the day, a sax player, if you lose, you, they got somebody else waiting there in the wings to back you up. Uh, yep, yep. Lionel Richie, newly inducted Rock yep. and Roll Hall of Fame member, by the way, and well deserved Absolutely. for okay. sure. So I, I was in corporate America for a little a time in my life, and uh, I got invited uh, by Steve Ballmer to Microsoft. And uh, he jumped around, did his thing and all that stuff. And then he, he had all of our partners to dinner. So we had dinner 
there with a, a bunch of people and, and Lionel Richie performed. Uh, oh man, that's that's great. <laughs> so Lionel so Richie fun, performed, yeah. and uh, he uh, I came up and said hello. It was such a pleasant uh, person, and he signed the CD for my mom. My mom was a huge fan, and I gave her. I came back and I gave her a CD. So which slides it. His concert was probably one of the best I've seen in the last couple of years. I'm telling you, I, I, he was dead on. The entire night, people were were just screaming, singing. Are you uh, listening right. to anything interesting these days? You know, I'm. I to be honest with you, I'm an oldies but a goodie guy. I I'm constantly listening to five, six year old music. I I I am not. I don't really get to yeah. the music of today. Uh, a lot of the songs that are out there I, right now, it's just like, right yeah, now. I have an 18 year old daughter and the same, like, uh, you know, I'm like, I don't know. I don't want to be the old guy in the room, but man, it just does not connect. Yeah. It does not. Right. You don't want to be the old guy. Don't say anything, but it's like, I just don't get it. I don't you know, <laughs> think that's music. Yeah, yeah. Why is that music? Um, do you remember the very first album that you actually bought was? Which that's one? A, the one that had, um, uh, 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 uh. Um, who's a big hit? Um, Stairway, the one with Stairway. Yeah, that was Stairway. my very first album. I actually my Led Zeppelin four. Oh man, which one that I? Yeah, I, I don't have it back here. But Led Zeppelin four was my very first album. I actually physically bought with my money with rock and roll and Stairway and all that. I was playing in a band at the time in high school, and um, uh, and we literally played I think every single song on that album. Wow. So I literally, that album was like, but also, uh, I bought, I think Santana. I may have bought Santana before I bought that one. I bought the, the Abraxas album. Yeah. That may have been the first one I actually had money in my pocket, went to the place, bought the album, brought it home, opened it up, put it on the turntable. Love. I think it was love. that. That's that great. Um, Third one is, is uh, Stevie Wonder. Oh, yeah. That's back here. Song like- I have that. Yep. Love it. Love Stevie. Stevie. Um, what has cannabis met in your life? Um, I think cannabis has, throughout my journey, been an integral part to my survival. I mean, that's 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 pretty impactful. So, yeah, I, I think without without a doubt, I think it's been an integral part to my survival. I think it would be an integral part to the survival of this planet. Um, people don't understand if we could just get off of the, the stupid bus, you know, stop being a window licker and, and um, you know, uh, pay attention. Cannabis and hemp sequesters more CO2 than almost 100%. Any other planet I, and people forget that when, when Chernobyl yeah. happened, they went and planted hemp everywhere. Why hemp? There's still hemp there. There's still plants there. Right now, they're still playing hemp there because it leaches the, the, the heavy metals and material out of the ground. Um, but it also sequesters more CO2 than almost any other plant on the planet. Yep. So if we were to skip growing forests but just started growing fields of hemp, we could literally change some of the CO2 levels in the atmosphere. If we had a, a area as big as the, the rainforest, but we just went down there and just flew over it and dropped seeds, and grew hemp plants beside the indigenous plants, we would literally start sucking more hemp out of the, I mean, sucking more CO2 out of the atmosphere than any other plant can help us do. So that's just one thing. 
But then we also do know that, you know, we're still finding out now the number of cannabinoids, the number of phytocannabinoids, the number of uh, phytonutrients, um, you know, terpenes, flavonoids. We don't even know what the future holds for cannabis because scientifically we haven't done enough research to figure it out. Though there has been well over 35,000 peer-reviewed study documents published in the last 10 years, 3,500 of them in 2021, 3,500 of them in 2022. Um, we have the research, but we haven't figured out really the true value of this plant. And when we do, which will make us understand the basis of what we are as mammals, I think we're going to have an age of enlightenment. I hope so, yeah, because we got to get off this uh, subscription model that uh, the pharmaceutical industry has got us on. Yeah, prescription model. You're right. You're right. You're right. Yeah. Well, but then they got to get off the synthetic 100%. thing. You know what I mean? Uh, nature yep. is nature for 100%. a reason. All right. So, final bonus question. Please describe what your room looked like growing up. Well, let's see. My room changed during time because, you know, for a period of time, I was in a room shared with my brother. Then he was gone. Then I was in a room by myself. And I think my room was was literally just, uh, you know, half, no longer bunk beds, but flat beds on the floor, two of them. And, um, you know, from about 14 on, it was a definite rocker roll musician's room. Posters of every yeah, type. Any, any ones that you, you remember you can you can share? Bands? Oh, I remember Earth, Wind & Fire, No Sound of the Butts. I can remember um, Tower of Power. Was one of my just one of my all time favorite groups, mm-hmm. um, the original funk masters. Um, and then, you know, as funk started coming on, you know, I became you know a, a, a George Clooney, Bootsy, Clooney, yeah, Bootsy, yeah, all those guys. Um, I can't remember. Uh, man, I can't. Michael Cooper and uh, what was the name of the group he was with? Um, it was a uh, funk. Uh, so Ohio Players, there was Come Function. All those kind of groups, all come function, all those guys. So, like my, 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 yeah, work. That stuff. Yep. all right. So, uh, first of all, I want to thank you for doing this again. It's been like, you know, wonderful and I'm super, super grateful. Um, are you, are you doing any, uh, you have a, a show that you're doing now? Absolutely. I do a show. As a matter of fact, I, well, I'm doing a couple of them. I do a show that's called The Balancing Act, which is a kind of a morning s talk show. I have a closed, um, um is via verde um uh who's a a it's kind of like a morning talk show mm-hmm. but that's second my second show my first show that i'm doing is, is something called military makeover a lifetime uh we'll take uh deserving veterans and uh, take their homes and and make them over from the ground up turning it into like a forever home or free them Community comes together vendors come together out of the community we all come together and in 10 days we actually Turn over a brand new home. We're about to go. They're they're building up one right now. I leave on uh, Thursday to go do that to deliver a home to a veteran this weekend. Um, and then I do an offshoot of that. It's called Military Makeover Operation Career, where we feature businesses that hire veterans. Yeah, so that's great. You, amazing work that you're doing. Is there anything else that you want to share where people can get in touch with you, foundation wise? Anything that you want to share, uh, social or anything? I'm 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 all over. I've you know I've got I've got my own podcast, which is uh, Let's Be Blunt with Montel, and uh, which which I was called, featured um, on. So graciously, uh, please uh, listen to the episode with Len May on it. 
<laughs> Absolutely. And, and uh, you know, we're at about 250, 250 episodes now. We've had people like yourself, Dr. Oz, Dr. Sanjay Gupta, some of the leading doctors in the cannabis space, some leading advocates in the cannabis space um, we've had on. Uh, and it's it does very, very well. I really enjoy doing that. Um, you can get me wherever podcasts are available. I'm on, uh, and um, yeah, I've been been working on several other initiatives to kind of continue to give back. I'm working on one initiative right now that's um, called the RTM protocol, which is remit, uh, uh, reconsolidation of traumatic memories, mm-hmm. which is a protocol that works at alleviating symptoms of PTSD. It's one of the only. It's the most efficacious uh, protocol that's out there today. Matter of fact, being used in the Ukraine. And in Poland right now for people who have been suffering PTSD from this current war. Uh, and we're hoping to get that here and and um, get it into the hands of our clinicians that treat our veterans and also uh, anybody suffering from PTSD because this works for a non-combat you PTSD. You know, what, what I wanted to ask you, so, I, I forgot all about it, but I wanted to get your thoughts on uh, psychedelics and the treatment because so I, I work with a lot of veterans now and there was a group that uh, um, were really going through a hard time during COVID. And uh, we we did this whole thing with some psilocybin for them. And it was tremendous help for them. But uh, I just want to see what your thoughts are. I, um, I, I think that the science, I think, you know, the scientific world is going to accept that mm-hmm. a lot quicker than they've accepted cannabis. Uh, we do know for a fact that it works. Um, uh, because there's some things that happen mechanism-wise with psilocybin and some of the psychedelics that seem to break that hard-written bond that's formed in the amygdala that helps you carry on those traumatic events. Um, and I, I'm psyched. I'm, I'm, I've been working with some uh, companies that are working on developing out protocols for that. I, I I just hope that we maintain as slow as you go because we're starting to figure out that, you know, microdosing is probably where this is going to end up at. Yeah. And have its most efficacious. Yeah. Effect. <clears throat> Makes total sense. A, a lot of these products, including THC have narrow therapeutic windows. And when some people take too much, they can actually trigger an adverse effect. So I, I completely agree with you. Not as adverse as a pharmaceutical, but still unpleasant. But yep, and I, and I think we're going to hit the point where um, I, I, the one thing I'm so excited about is that you know the medical community seems to want to accept that more than they do cannabis, which is just it's it's, it's complete bullshit. bullshit. And, and the only reason that. why it makes sense from their standpoint is because it's a single molecule. You know, you have psilocin, but you have over 400 different molecules in this plant, and they have a hard time understanding that. It's a combination of all these things. They're used to, wait, it's one thing that you take, one pill, one substance. So I think it aligns better with their thinking. Because in their mind, one thing, one thing. (laughs) Sir, Mattel, thank you so much for doing this. I highly appreciate it. And really for all the work that you you do and you've been doing. And uh, I just want to thank you. for being an activist, being out there, because a lot of people that are in this industry now are standing on the shoulders of people like yourself because you're out there and, uh, you know, helping people to understand and, and uh, you know, tell them exactly what this plan is all about. So really appreciate it. 
you so much. Thanks for making me a part today. Thanks for listening to today's show. To check out more great cannabis podcasts, go to podconnects.com. Here's a preview of one of our other shows. Hey friends, I'm Brandon and I'm Saba and we are your host of the Cannabis Hangout podcast, an educational platform to connect with the cannabis community and share personal stories while breaking the stigma of marijuana. Join us every Sunday at 7 p.m. to gain valuable insight with different perspectives from industry leaders, growers, and medical marijuana patients. This is a place to learn so much from different angles in the cannabis industry. So tune in while we break it all down. down.